Welcome and thank you for joining Speak Up for Safer Care. Speak Up for Safer Care is a product of Safer Care Texas, the Patient Safety Division at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth. Our mission is to challenge traditional thinking to eliminate preventable harm. Speak Up for Safer Care illuminates gaps in care, process, or design that leads to preventable harm in all healthcare settings. I'm your host, John Sims, Director of Safer Care Texas, and today our guest is Dr. Kate Taylor, one of our own Safer Care Texas clinical executives, and she works in uh, the geriatrics clinic for our HSC Health. Dr. Kate Taylor is an experienced board certified family nurse practitioner with 22 years of experience in healthcare. As I mentioned, she's a clinical executive at Safer Care Texas and profoundly appreciates and respects older adults. And her goal is to make a difference in their lives. Dr. Taylor is active in the clinical education of uh, the University of North Texas Health Science Center health profession students and Safer Care Texas improving safety and care delivery. Dr. Kate Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything that I missed about your background? Well, thanks, John, for having me. I have to tell you that I'm actually going on 24 years now. So I spent 22 years in the hospital, first as an Army Nurse Corps officer, and then later about 12 years in the hospitalist role. So I just want to update you with that and let you know my current focus is now in the outpatient world to include uh, house calls or home-based primary care, as well as advanced care planning. Thank you for adding that because um, I, I have I've worked with you and we've talked about that uh, a number of times and we'll, we'll discuss that during this podcast. Um, today, we're going to talk uh, about another um and this is with the Institute of um, Healthcare Improvement, IHI, called Age-Friendly Health Systems. We're going to talk about that today. So can you give us just a broad overview? What is that? For somebody who's listening and who doesn't know what that is. Sure. So before I even talk about age-friendly health systems, I think it's important to talk about why geriatrics or older adult medicine or older adult healthcare is so important. And it's really important because in the next 30 years, we know that the older population, that, that being said, 65 or older, will be doubling and almost doubling in size. Mm-hmm. So that means we'll have a little bit more than 80 million older adults in the United States in the year 2050. So with that increasing number of older adults, which that's a really large population, 80 million, plus as those older adults get older, they become more complex, we have to find a way in our healthcare system to address their needs. So yes, in 2017, the Institute of Healthcare Improvement partnered with the John A. Hartford Foundation and a couple of other foundations to come up with this framework. And this framework looks at following evidence-based practices, causing no harm, and aligning what matters to older adults and their families. So what does it mean to be age-friendly? That means that it provides care addressing four different areas for older adults, meaning medications, mentation, mobility, and what matters. Th- thank you for that for that synopsis. And I want to dive a little bit deeper into each one of those because I think they matter, right? Mm-hmm. So let, let's first talk about what matters. So um, 
I believe that's very important. Here's here's my take on it. I've challenged the the notion that patients are called patients or clients or customers or consumers. I believe they're partners in their own care. And so talk a little bit about what matters to older adults. Sure. And, and what you just said brought me back to a story from yesterday. I saw a patient yesterday and she was establishing care with our, with our uh, clinic here. And I always ask what brings someone to our clinic or why they want to change providers. And her answer was just that her, her provider would basically tell her what needed to happen instead of talking to her, her about what he or she thought should happen and then what she thought should happen and then them making a, a, a plan together. So what matters can mean a whole lot of things. So I would say traditionally medical people do think about what matters in terms of advanced care planning. That is, is one part of it. So advanced care planning is really a conversation about future healthcare decisions. And that can include things like medical power of attorney, directives to physicians, or a living will, an out-of-hospital um, do not resuscitate, or the Texas MOST form that stands for Texas Medical Orders for Scope of Treatment form. So that's one component of what matters. But another component of what matters is helping people figure out what their goals are. And I've been doing that with my practice here in our older adult clinic. You know, after we've done, let's say, advanced care planning documents and, and figured all of that out, or sometimes when we're not sure where we're going with the person's care, we may have a conversation called patient priorities of care, which sort of filters out what is most important to the person. And a couple of months ago, I did a com- I had a conversation with the older gentleman. He's he was probably in his mid eighties, lives at home. He had been dizzy. I had adjusted some of his blood pressure medications, and he said that his dizziness was better. So I said, I checked the box, and I moved on with the visit. However, then I started doing the patient priorities of care specific dialogue, and he said what mattered most to him was his dizziness. (laughs) And I said, well, I thought your dizziness was better. And then he said, well, actually, it's not really that much better, and I'm still concerned about it. So that, you know, gave me some insight to what was important to him. And maybe I didn't hear him very well at the beginning, or we obviously had some miscommunication. I thought he thought thought one thing and he thought I thought another thing. So it can give some clarification of what to do with, with, your, with uh, your patients and what they want. Um, so it's important to remember that people have different needs and different interests Something might be important to one person and you think that's the most important thing, but they don't necessarily think it's the most important thing. You know, uh, Dr. Taylor, I am, um, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times, and, and I've, I've had this in my own personal interactions with providers, is sometimes, you know, I, I don't feel like that I'm heard, right? And I've had lots of family members feel the, the same way. And so kudos to you for recognizing that and then addressing it with this gentleman to find out, hey, what what really matters to, to him? You were linking this to blood pressure, which probably was the, the culprit, but he may or may not have, have seen it that way, right? Well, I thought it was the blood pressure medicine that was contributing to the dizziness, right. which after that issue got better, he said it was better, but 
it still wasn't resolved. So I think there was another component of or reason for the dizziness. So I needed to to address that. Right. And it sounds like you, you did that is my point. Yes. You know, and just, hey, I adjusted your blood pressure medicine. Let's talk about the next problem. Correct. Yeah, so good for you. Medications is that that second uh, M in the framework. So, and, and medications is, um, it seems simple, maybe, but it, it's a pretty complicated process, is it not? It's a really complicated process. <laughs> and it's really more of a systems issue than an individual provider and patient issue. So there's lots of various components that affect it. You know, remember, or I'm going to tell you that, you know, over half of the older adults take five or more medications, which that really is defined as polypharmacy, meaning taking a lot of medicines. The definition for polypharmacy is is not really defined. You know, I've seen anywhere between three and five medications being the definition for polypharmacy. And then also know about 20% of the time, at least one of them, those medications are not necessarily needed. Mm. So we know that as people take more medications, they have increased risk for adverse drug events. And then that also can account for more hospitalizations and actually accounts for more morbidity and mortality than chronic disease itself. So we think of something as simple as a pill, it's going to help you, but there's a lot more involved in it. Sounds like we need to be strategic and selective with which pills we're, we're asking our patients to take. Because I can imagine in, in this healthcare landscape, gosh, I, you know, my background is hospitals. And I remember there were so many different consults or so many different specialists who were ordering this. And one specialist would say, well, that specialist over there they shouldn't have ordered this medication. I'm going to give you this one instead. And you got a patient and a family who's just going back and forth. Well, everybody's a doctor here and they're telling me to do this and they're telling me not to do that. It's, it's complicated, as I said. Correct. So the um, two things with medications that I think is so important is one, medication reconciliation, which is 94% of older adults have some type of inaccuracy with their medication reconciliation, meaning 94% of the time we think they're taking something or they think there's some kind of miscommun- miscommunication between what we think they're taking and what they think they should be taking. 94%. Correct. Wow. And, I, and I see that personally all the time. So I w- the Agency for Healthcare um, Research and Quality came up with the brown bag method, which I use very often. Now, it's more convenient when I do a house call. And so what the brown bag method is, is you look at the actual bottles of medications Mm -hmm. and you compare that with your list of medications. And at the same time, you're asking them about the medications. Are they taking it twice a day? Are they taking it once in the morning? Are they taking it with food or however the medications are instructed to take? And, And I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, oh, there hasn't been any changes with with my medicine. But. I said, you know what, I just want to make sure I I have the most accurate list and let me make sure I don't have anything written down incorrectly. And often we do find medications that 
should be on the list or shouldn't be on the list. Oh. And even yesterday I was talking to someone on the on the phone. I did a telehealth visit with her and she went through each of her bottles of medicines and she was on a very potent blood pressure medication. Well, she her she was feeling really dizzy and she was feeling really poor and she went to the emergency room and they sent her back home but they didn't make any changes in her medicines. And so it was we didn't have what, that potent blood pressure medicine on our list. And I said, whoa, you got to stop this other potent blood pressure medicine because she was on two plus potent blood pressure medications and then several others as well. So medication reconciliation, super important. And then the other thing for older adults, I think looking at deprescribing is really important. So I had some medical students yesterday and I said, when we look at our patient's medications, we need to try to figure out what medication we can deprescribe what medication we can stop because 20% of the time, one of those medications is not needed. That that's an, that's an interesting approach. I let's, let's see what we can take away because in my experience, it's always, well, we'll just add this one and it'll fix that. You know, listening to you talk, Dr. Taylor, um, I'm just, I'm curious with the price of medications, some, some medications are just, they're cost prohibitive. So I could imagine in one of your home visits, I wonder how many times you might have seen maybe a stockpile of medications, maybe some medications that had been deprescribed, but they kept them. They kept them there just in case. Oh, yes. I, I actually saw a lady a couple of weeks ago, and she had five different types of calcium medications at her home. And she was a dialysis patient, and it was you know, very complex situation. She probably had 20 other medicines. So I I went through the 20 other medications. We got those sorted out. But I was like, geez, I don't know which calcium she's supposed to be taking or not taking. She was going to dialysis the next day. So I was able to put all those five different types of calciums into a separate bag for her. And I said, when you see the nephrologist or the kidney doctor, you ask him which bottle you're supposed to take. I made a close follow-up visit the next month. Well, she had three of the calcium medications. <laughs> they said, oh, yes, they did change it, but one of them was too expensive, so we didn't get it. So we're just taking these three instead. So it did take me calling the nephrologist to get some clarification. So we tried with her intervening, but it didn't really work. It sort of worked, but not not successfully. <laughs> wow. So, so patients, they're, they've got their own little workarounds. That one they prescribe is too expensive. We'll just use these that we've got. Yes. Good for you for keeping that communication going with the nephrologist. That was a 20 minute conversation. <laughs> well, it, it's time consuming to, to kind of unweave what's already been wound up, right? Correct. And that, and that I think is one of the reasons why people are on too many medications. You're, you're absolutely right. Especially with the short, everybody's short staffed right now in healthcare and they're stressed and pressured to get things done at a certain time. And everybody doesn't have 20. I mean, that's one patient. Mm-hmm. Think about, you know, three or four patients in a day. That's, that's a lot of time. Exactly. But I was determined to get the right answer. <laughs> and and uh, we need, we need people like you who go and we'll knock down every barrier to get the right answer for the safety of our patients. Good for you. What about mentation? I, uh, medications is complicated, but I suspect that mentation is 
either equally or maybe even a little more complicated. Oh, yes. I mean, mentation is, is again, one of the big concerns for older adults. When we think of mentation, we think of the three Ds. Delirium, which is caught, well, let me just go over the three. Delirium, dementia, and depression. So when you think of delirium, delirium is an acute state, meaning there has been a specific injury that is reversible. So it may be something like medications, adverse drug events. It may be infection. It may be some kind of metabolic problem. And then the next uh, D is dementia, which a lot of us are familiar with that term. But when we think of dementia, think of dementia being an umbrella term. Alzheimer's dementia being the most common type of dementia. Think of that as the umbrella stick. And then there's various other types of of dementias, like probably most commonly after uh, Alzheimer's is uh, vascular dementia. And then sometimes you can have a combination of of various types of dementia, which we do often see um, Alzheimer's and vascular dementia sort of being intertwined. And then when you think of depression, you know, we use that term a lot of some, you know, someone has depression, but really depression, the definition of it is really feeling down enough to where it affects your everyday living activities. So that is a significant disease state, and that can affect your mentation. We've seen people that were testing them on a memory test. They score poorly, but it turns out really they're depressed. Mm. Once we treat that depression, their mentation improves. Let's go back to medication. So um, how do y'all treat depression? Is it is it with medications or are there some other therapies, non pharmacologic therapies that you use? Well, yes, there's there's definitely non-pharmacologic uh, therapies. And, and honestly, when someone has depression, I talk to them about options being cognitive behavioral therapy, having a counselor, coming up with some goals of their own, and medications as well. So what does, well, how does the person want to try to treat this? And then, and then you sort of make a plan from there. That's and, and you know when you were talking about delirium, is there a difference between encephalopathy and delirium? Well, delirium is specifically defined as an irreversible mm. injury, hmm. and encephalopathy means your brain is not functioning well in a typically a your brain is just not functioning well. So typically, you think of delirium associated with toxic metabolic encephalopathy, meaning your brain is not functioning well in a toxic environment, often from infection, electrolyte abnormalities, dehydration, things like that. I see. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the next thing is mobility. All four of these, this, this framework, I mean, when you peel it all back, there's a lot involved, right? Mobility, you know, I could see that if if you're not able to get around like you used to be, that depression could set in, right? Because the same activities of daily living that you used to perform, you know, independently, you can't do anymore, right? Uh, but then there's that, the, the risk of falling in the home. Uh, so tell us about how mobility works in this whole framework. Sure. So I literally just like this week found out a new little factoid uh, sitting in the, on a lecture and it was reported that every 20 minutes, an older adult dies from a fall. Wow. Every that 20 minutes. is significant. That means we need to be on top of this. <laughs> so I, I like to tell people, you know, when we think about mobility, 
people often think about strength. They think about weights or they think about being able to, you know, walk certain distances. I think of strength, flexibility, and endurance being all equally important. Because if you're flexible and you fall, you might prevent yourself from having more injury if you have more flexibility. And so I try to remind people, even if they have poor mobility, some just simple stretching can help them quite a bit with mobility, whatever that mobility is. Is it in the bed? Is it in the chair? Is it just transferring? So I think it's important to to emphasize those things. Also, when you're thinking about mobility, we want to screen people for, uh, for risks of falling. And there's lots of different evidence-based tools that you can use. I would say the get up and go is one of the most common that ones that we use here in our practice, where you have the person stand up, they walk 10 feet, they turn around, they come back and they sit down. If they can't do that within 12 seconds, they're considered at increased risk. I mean, if you do it yourself, that's a pretty good little clip of get up, walk 12, 12 seconds and get back. So that does put a lot of people at that increased risk for falls. Uh, another test is a test where you just simply stand up and um, see if you can stand up out of the chair without using your arms of the chair. And you see how often the person can sit. And the CDC has a little chart where it correlates with the person's age. But if the person uses the arms of their chairs, of their chair, they know that they're already at increased risk for falling. Mm. So when I think of mobility, I, I also have to think about bone health. So that means osteoporosis or osteopenia, meaning uh, weak bones. And the reason why, why it's so important for your bones to be strong is because if you fall then and you have a hip fracture, we know 50% of the time in the next year you very well may die. Yeah. So due to complications of the surgery and or just overall decline in health. And I think that's a really significant number, as well as that every 20 minutes somebody dies from a fall. So we have to take this seriously. We have to screen our patients because it it might not be evident just by looking at the person. And when I have a person in the exam room, I always have them get up from the corner chair. They always notoriously sit in the corner chair, the furthest spot away from me. (laughs) And I ask them to please stand up and walk over to the exam table. And that may be simply just so I can see how they're moving if they need to use the arms on the chair. Good for you. You know, again, I'll revert back to my hospital experience. I didn't see that nearly enough. And of course, I was in the hospital pre-pandemic, but I didn't see providers watch patients walk. That's an extremely important assessment. So good for you. Um, The other point I wanted to make was, you know, we really need to work together. I mean, as as a community to solve this fall problem. I've been in healthcare for 23 years. You mentioned 24 years. It was a problem then, still a problem. I think that 94% of, uh, of uh, the medication reconciliation there being something wrong, I, I think that's a great place to start, right? Because if we're making, if we're giving people too much of a blood pressure medication, we're lowering, we're reducing their sodium, uh, we're making them dizzy, they're getting dehydrated, and they're more likely to fall. So let's talk, we, we've talked about quite a bit here, but... Are there any other improvements 
in geriatric um, for geriatric safety. Other than what we've talked about today, if you had a blank check with you know that you could write whatever, what would you say would be what we would need for to improve geriatric safety? Well, I would say that. You know, since the four M's came out, another M has been developed called multi-morbidity or multi-complexity. And that really does encompass the older adult, that they are a, a complex creature in their, in their, and we have to be able to respond to that. And so that may be managing a variety of health conditions, assessing their living conditions when they're impacted by age, health conditions or social concerns. And that's one of the reasons why I love home visits is because you get to see the person in their environment, how they're surviving in their world. Is it working or is it not working? Or what can we do to help them make it work better? Sure. Yeah. And I think that's very important. I, I, I'm glad that you're, that you're uh, doing the home-based visits. I'd really like to see more of that because we can learn a whole lot from, like you say, their environment, from a whole health perspective, right? Your nutrition, your mobility, you know, your, that depression and dementia that you were talking about. We can learn a whole lot about somebody's environment that perhaps unintentionally, unintentionally or intentionally, they may conceal in the confines of a medical office or a hospital room, right? Exactly. So what inspired you to become a nurse and a nurse practitioner? Well, I got inspired to be a nurse because I got a scholarship. <laughs> so I was walking around my high school gym and there was a army recruiter who could sell ice to Eskimos. And he said, hey, do you want to go to TCU and be an army nurse? I said, not really. <laughs> <laughs> And so I um, ended up going for the interview. I did the application and I, but, but when I drove up to TC, I drove up to TCU and I said, oh gosh, I like it here. <laughs> so I, I went, did nursing school. I, did, I honestly, I never really was around anybody in healthcare. Mm-hmm. I come from a long line of teachers and I never really saw anybody sick in my life. And, and so I really had no clue of what I was getting myself into. And then I got on, I became a med surge nurse in the army and, and I figured out um, how to prioritize and how to improve people's hospitalizations by getting them up, getting their everyday care done, being able to assess their whole body when I'm doing all those kind of things and talking to patients, giving them education and and making that difference. And so as I graduated from a med surge nurse, I wanted to learn more. I, I you know, when I went to nursing school, I, I, when, when I graduated as a nurse, I was only 21. And I mean, I didn't know anything. <laughs> so when I was in nursing, I was like, oh, I want to learn all this stuff. So I progressed to the trauma ICU and all the various ICUs at disadmanagement. And I, and then I said, okay, I got it. I need something else to do. So um, <laughs> that's why I ended up going to nurse practitioner school. And and there you are. I just keep learning. And that's why I do like, I love this profession is because you do learn something new every day. Like I just told you, I just learned that one little factoid this week. I said, oh my gosh, I got to write that down. I, I love that fact. And, and you just learn something new every day from the science. And then you also learn something new from your patients. 
Ah, I love that. And May 6th to the 12th is Nurses Week, mm-hmm. you know, and our nurses through the pandemic, I mean, they've been through a lot, right? What would you say to nurses right now in the spirit of Nurses Week that are contemplating joining the nursing profession? What advice would you give? I would say make sure to know how to take care of yourself Mm. while you're caring for others. Because if you don't know how to, if, if you can't take care of yourself, if you're feeling burnt out, if you're feeling overtasked, if you're feeling not present in the moment, you're not going to be able to take care of your patients. And so honestly, when I was a hospitalist and there were a million things going on, before I went into the patient's room, I would take a deep breath and I would tell myself I need to concentrate. I need to focus on the person. And that would help me just get myself together (laughs) so Mm -hmm. I can take care of the person. And I think you have to learn how to take care of yourself, whether it's a brief breath or two, or if it's a, a whole entire day of a break that you may need. Uh, great point. And that, that's another whole health pillar, right? Is self-care. Very important for us to take care of ourselves before we can adequately care for others. Thank you, Dr. Kate Taylor. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today. And thank you for listening. Speak Up for Safer Care is a product of Safer Care Texas, the Patient Safety Division at the Health Science Center in Fort Worth, Texas. We'd like to thank our technical producer, Rob Upchurch. We are calling you to action. Speak up for safer care. Suppose you're a healthcare worker, counselor, subject matter expert, former patient or caregiver, and have a patient safety story. Safer Care Texas invites you to be our next guest. Please contact us through our website, safercaretexas.org. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Safer Care Texas. We'll talk again next Wednesday. Thank you for listening, and as always, speak up for safer care.